Thank you, Father, dear friends in Christ. I think that everybody in this room knows a family or is somehow involved within a family which is in trouble. Either the spouses are broken or the children are, the spouses are together, but the children are in some sort of trouble, whether with uh, a bad marriage of their own or whether they're in deep trouble with dope or whatever. And this has become a new phenomenon. It's relatively new. No one can say that family life has always been exquisitely happy. The more you grow older, the more you see the inevitable sorrows and pressures and anxieties of the family. But there's no doubt that within the last 20 years or so, we've seen the troubled family accelerate, that the decomposition of families the, uh, uh, seems to accelerate at great social and personal cost. That uh, there was a psychologist in America, a very good one, which is already rare, a, a family psychologist, and he noted that part, uh, every child deserves and every child needs the security of a, of a peaceful home with both parents present, and this is part of the very psychic health of the child. But as a matter of fact now, we're getting to the point where almost half the children are raised in a family where one or the other parent is missing, or where one, or one of the other parent or natural parent is missing, whether he's in a, is with a step-parent or in an orphanage or whatever. And this psychologist notes, this is making inevitable a new round of social trouble, that a child deprived of the security of a loving, good home, it, it's much easier for such a child to get into trouble. So we're really guaranteeing that social workers and policemen and psychologists will have plenty of work in the future because we're turning out troubled people and no one seems to enjoy it. Certainly not the squabbling spouses, certainly not the innocent victims in the family who stand by while there are all these uh, terrible, uh, acrimonious uh, discussions and so on, so that one wonders what principle of evil has entered into the family uh, and has accelerated in our time so that the earth becomes still more a hostile place. We all know how many problems life already brings to those who have good health and good family and good education and how much more difficult life is when any one of these things is absent, above all, a good family. So I have the following points to make in this talk. I'm going to begin with a very elementary question which nonetheless today needs to be answered. I want to ask, what is a family? Secondly, what are the enemies of the family, and we know them, but we ought to spell them out and be more aware of them. And thirdly, very briefly, how is it possible to start to reverse the trend? Don't be under any illusion that a talk here or a book there or a papal proclamation there will arrest the deterioration of the family, but at least in our own minds and for the sake of our own children and, and the future, we ought to start beginning to think deeply about the reversal. And the point is, if there is no reversal, it's the end of civilization. Oh, we'll have people on earth, but one dreads to think 
of what sort of a community there will be when we have lonesome people prowling the earth, having no one united to them in a permanent union, having no unity of heart and belonging to some sort of a super state and having everything done for them by professionals hired by this omnicompetent state. So those are the three points. Now the first point is what is a family? Well, a kindergarten person knows this. But if a person is six years old, he knows that there's mother and dad and himself and the brothers or sisters. But you better believe that even this is under dispute now. And at first it sounds silly. At first, whenever you hear a stupid idea, you say, well, what, what are these idiots doing? Just trying to get attention by, by uh, uh, coming up with some nonsense? Well, that might be their strategy. But before you know it, you see they're dead serious that they translate their nonsense into certain kinds of laws. Now here, uh, the United States, a few years ago, was going to solve the problem of the family by a meeting with all the professionals, at government expense, of course. Whenever you have, whenever you have the scientists solving anything, they first make sure that the treasury is full. Then they can solve the problem. Or at least they can have their meeting. So they had all kinds of workshops and everything all over the country, and they finally met in Washington, D.C., and they had days and days of dispute about what is a family. You know why? Because the gays and the lesbians were being discriminated against, don't you know? That the old-fashioned point of having a male and a female in holy matrimony at least in legal wedlock, with a binding promise, and still more, in sacramental wedlock, wherein one binds oneself before the Lord. And instead of having this type of marriage with children issuing from it, being called a family, it turns out that the gays say that one needs for family only two adults, even of the same sex. And you might say, well, why do they want this? Well, then they want income tax exemption for their marriage. They want the right to adopt children. So two gay men adopt a young baby boy. Two gay women adopt a young uh, 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 girl. And all of this seriously discussed, having enormous publicity in the press. And that's just the tip of the iceberg, but that already shows you that when this, this horrible arrogance, I mean this madness of fooling around with words such that perverted couples claim the right, the legal right, with all its privileges to be called a family, you better believe we're in trouble on this notion. So here we have no difficulty, I should hope, in agreeing that there is a God-willed, God-created institution called marriage. It comes from the Almighty Himself. In the book of Genesis, does, that's among the first things we read. That God created man to his own image and likeness. Male and female he created them. And that one of each sex is destined to pair off a woman here, a man there, to be united so that they are so intimate, one can say they are two in one flesh. And united in a permanent bond. They renounce other ties. They leave their family's household. They renounce their other ties. And from that union, ordinarily come children. 
And that's the family. And anything else is, is not only nonsense, it's revolutionary nonsense, threatening still more this fragile institution called the family. <clears throat> now, I asked, I, my topic is the family under siege, which intimates that families are in trouble, that they're enemies to the family. And I want to make an important distinction, which is quite obvious, that one can think of the family in the sense of a concrete family, the Jones family, the Smith family, uh, the Robert family, and these are real men and real women with real children, and I want to investigate how these really existing families are in trouble, or who are the enemies, or which are the enemies of these really existing families. I also want to note that besides the really existing families, there's the concept of family, the institution of family, what you could call the philosophical essence of a family, and that's a little more vague. Uh, you know the Smith family and the Jones family, but what do you mean by the family? Well, it's a real concept, and it plays an enormous role in concrete families, and I submit that even as the concrete families have enemies, and they are legion, and they are winning, so too the institution has enemies, and they seem to be winning. These enemies of the institution, by the way, tend to be philosophers and lawyers, legislators, whereas the enemies of concrete family can be anything. Now let's look at the concrete family. We have a man and a woman united in matrimony, and we have one or more children. And with the grace of God... This family indeed can be wholesome and united and cooperate. It can be a community of life and love. And the parents can rear their children in, uh, with the fear of God and with, the parents can stand behind their children to launch them into existence, can help their health, their nourish, nourishment, above all can help their growth, their personality, can allow them to be instructed in truth about God and man, that would be devoutly to be wished. We should all pray either to be part of such a family or at least when we start our own family to make such a unity possible. But even such a family is in trouble. It's being assaulted. The enemies lurk all around, above all toward the children. So if you say that in what sort of enemies do we ascertain or, or do we look for assaulting this concrete family, my own family with my own wife and children, well, in general, anything that somehow poisons any one of my family members as an individual, anything that somehow poisons the bond existing between me and my wife and my child, that's an enemy. Also, Anything even negatively that doesn't support me. That it is not enough that people leave me alone and, and uh, don't assault me or my wife or children with their, with their filth. But I also need the positive support of the community that the family is so crucial to society and of course to the happiness of each individual that it needs positive support of church and school and state. Every law, instead of always looking at rights, 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 gay rights and pornography rights and so on, every law ought to look 
at the effect of a given law on the family. And if it doesn't support family life, it's rotten. So, laws that fail to support family life are part of the enemies and institutions, schools, and it may be churches. To the extent that the church doesn't help families by strengthening the family bonds and individual members, it is no friend of the family. Now, when we look at this more in detail, we simply have to catalog a deplorable list of of activities that there are the media. And it makes no difference whether these, uh, one talks about television or radio or, or literature, I mean printed press, one should not call it literature, but all of these forces, it could be a comedian, it could be a comic book, it could be some, some uh, television show which is very witty, but which makes ridiculous family faithfulness, fidelity. I personally have a television set which is in the closet, and we take it out only for papal inaugurations and for Shakespeare, and once in a while for a good opera. But my children, thank God, have ne- do not live by the television, which is a great blessing. And I think it's part of the reason which so far accounts for the unity of my own family. But I've heard from friends and even from enemies that for years and years there are programs on American television which are funny. I mean, they have enough humor in them. But the whole result is to corrode respect for fidelity. The father is always made to look like an idiot. Uh, swinging couples, the cheating on each other, that's glamorous. Friends, that's an enemy to the family. Children drinking that stuff in, even while they're laughing at the cute situation, they're getting the idea that there's something square, something medieval, something uh, unfortunate, something ridiculous about this deep fidelity between mother and father and about family loyalties. So these are the enemies to the families. All of this kind of, all this poisonous ridicule of good and this glamorizing of evil. And then, of course, there's pornography itself. And uh, in New York, uh, there was a time when I was young, many years ago, when you could go into New York. New York at that time, the, the official New York had about 8 million people. And I lived, uh, and then the outlying area had another two or three million. And I lived right across the river in New Jersey. I could, I was 14 years old going from New Jersey to New York for what they call high school. And my school ended at 3.30. And very often I would get home at midnight, 2 in the morning. My parents never worried. I would say, I'm coming home at 2 o'clock this morning. We have a play. We have a debate. Okay. Right now in broad daylight, they would worry, or I would worry if I were a parent now. And in those days in New York, we had a a, a city law, absolutely no pornography. Absolutely no pornography. This is a city of 8 million people with all the problems of a city. So a young person, a young man, a young woman, a family could walk down a street, go to a theater, buy a newspaper, and would not be assaulted by this stuff. Now, dear friends, you could even go into so-called Catholic bookstores. And the stuff, some of the stuff they serve up is not fit to be read, to be looked at. And, of course, if you go to a newspaper store or whatever, it's unbearable. It's not simply girly magazines, which are sinful enough, 
and which, which are occasions of sin for anyone, but above all the unmarried, but it's this hardcore, unspeakable pornography, and the government said, well, we don't know what to do about it. Uh, we're impotent, we can't control this, so their only answer is, guess what? Sex education. The only way to protect the kids from this filth, and they make believe they think it's filth, is to bring the filth into the classroom. So, from kindergarten on, they have unbearable courses, so-called sex education. And I don't know anything about England. I've only been here a few days, actually. But I suspect such forces are at work here. I'll tell you why. We in America are very efficient, and usually we're ahead of everybody. You know, the old Yankee ingenuity. But when it came to sex education... It started in Sweden, came from Sweden to England in the British Humanist Society, and I don't know how powerful the society is, but I'm absolutely certain what the British Humanist Society was pushing, let's say in 1965, we in America pushed in 1970. There was a five-year lag with you ahead of us. Of course, we do it more efficiently. We've got the know-how and the money. You, pr you probably do it retail. We do it wholesale. But this British Humanist Society, with such a beautiful name, Humanist, is an arrogant, atheistic society. And it dominates the thinking of professional educators in America, or, and I suspect here, we have the American Humanist Society over there, and it has nice fine words about uh, rights and human beings, but its entire goal is to strip the notion of God from education, from family, from society. Its God is the God of evolution. Its religion is the religion of relativism and subjectivism. And usually its politics is the politics of socialism. But that's not always the case. So that this is part of the assault that you might yourself have a healthy family, please God may it be so, you're doing your best to rear your children in the fear of the Lord. They go into a school, and they start hearing and seeing stuff which is unspeakably bad. And even if the image is not so graphically bad, usually it is, by the way. Uh, when I was in the Army, we used to refer to latrine art. And you don't have to be in the army to say it. You go to a restroom and all the restroom artists uh, depict all kinds of sexual acts. Well, that's usually in the books. So you don't have to go to a latrine. You just go to a school. And it gets, but that's, even, that's one thing. At least you could say, if your youngster goes to a restroom, don't look at it or don't pay attention. Some, some pervert did that. But in the books, there's not only the art, so to speak, there are all kinds of philosophies, all kinds of, of suggestions about the underlying premises. We're all going to do it, it being sexual promiscuity, but let's do it responsibly. There's always this ridicule of monogamous marriage. It's just one of these, uh, it's one of these arbitrary institutions which were okay, perhaps, in the days before the electric light. But now we're modern, we're swinging, we have the pill, we have all these wonderful new insights into the human person. So right in the classroom, you think your youngster is learning reading, writing, and arithmetic, and he may be, yeah. It, it may be that the schools still are good enough to do that, but he may also be learning all of this attitude, 
which assaults his sense of modesty and chastity, or her sense. The girls are the victims as much as the boys. And quite apart from assault on chastity are these insinuations about the modern way of looking at marriage and childbearing and family life in general. Now, to its great shame, in America at least, the Catholic Church, instead of resisting this, has joined That It's an unspeakable scandal that family life courses in Catholic schools in America follow the government program 95%. And then they add 5% holy water. So that, oh, that they put God somewhere in the text. But the same pictures, the same, the same miserable philosophy, the same assaults on chastity, the same, uh, uh, the same attacks on permanency of marriage, the same glorification of homosexuality is found in our program. So therefore, one of the effects of this little talk tonight might be that you don't sleep so well tonight. That'd be good. Nice night anyhow. Take a walk. Look at the stars. But it may be that you thought everything was beautiful. You got the mortgage paid off. Dad has a job. The kids are in school. Now you can get that boat you were always dreaming of. Well, I hope so. You've got a nice river here. But don't sleep so much. Start asking yourself, Do I know what goes on in these schools? Have I checked with the children? Do I see the textbooks and so on? Have I read, perhaps, studies of the kind of program offered in family life programs? Don't be deceived by the word family life. That doesn't mean mom and dad and the kids. It might mean the most perverted sense of what is marriage and what is sex. And above all, how to prevent children. Now, that's for sure. You'll never have a family life in which one merely is content with the facts of life. You'll never have a family life course. They always illustrate how one beats pregnancy, usually with pills and other instruments. But if that fails, abortion, of course. The biggest promoter of of family life programs in America is Planned Parenthood which had millions, hundreds of millions of dollars from the government, which is the center of all abortion and all contraception. So this is not a minor problem whatsoever, this assault on the concrete family. Now, uh, so if you ask me, therefore, what what are the enemies to the family those are some of them. They mostly concern sex and love and marriage and, and your attitude toward all these things. And the, the, all these pressures that right now the media and, and most writers have made it to seem that if you have a lot of children, there's something wrong with you. That It's disgusting. Uh, don't you know you're polluting the earth? And they've made it so that motherhood is a dirty word. And above all, if you're unmarried. Now, being pregnant and unmarried obviously means you've committed some sin against chastity, but for heaven's sake, it's not unto death. But So it's bad enough, say, that a girl gets into trouble, but there are enormous pressures now that she abort. Because they don't care how much fornication goes on. That's natural, of course. But for heaven's sake, don't get pregnant. Or if you are pregnant, for heaven's sake, don't keep the baby. So that's the enemy <clears throat> to family life. That is, and this is widespread and insidious, and we ought to be alert to it. Now, another enemy is a kind of <clears throat> sleep song, nursery rhyme lullaby, 
which parents are only too willing to listen to, that we parents would love to get rid of the responsibility of rearing our family. I don't say that cynically, but it is a difficult job to be responsible even for one child, his health, his education, his friends, his entertainment. It's almost a full-time job, especially if you really care and we're only too easy to pass on the task to professionals. And we even feel good about it. Well, I'm only a housewife, or I'm only a working man, and I don't know what to do, but I'm going to send my son or daughter to a professional. And you act as if simply by writing a check for tuition or fee, you've discharged parental responsibilities. Now, the professionals love you to think that way. I mean, they love to browbeat parents. You're only a parent. Who are you? You're only a parent. You are good for two things, of course. We need you to have the baby. We, we can't manufacture them yet in the test tube. <clears throat> and, of course, we need your money, after all. But you're not experts. We're the experts in everything. And, therefore, there's this pressure from the experts that you bring the children to them for whatever. And there's this kind of laxity on our part of wanting to give them up. And then the lullaby melody is played <clears throat> whereby <clears throat> we think our responsibility is discharged by pushing the children to someone else's care. And this happens in day nurseries. <clears throat> it happens in all kinds of small schools if, uh, in America. <clears throat> One is obliged to send a child to school, I believe, after the seventh birthday, in most states, but most families can't wait to send the kid to school in kindergarten. And we even have pre-kindergarten, and we have even nursery and pre-nursery. And, and how, how wonderful we feel. Well, my children is being uh, educated by professionals, so I have more time for bridge or whatever. That's bad. That's an enemy to the family, too. This shunting aside the God-given responsibility. And to all parents, I have this very strong recommendation whether you want to give up your children too soon or too often, or whether other people force you to do so, my advice is, would you please look at the birth certificate? You are the mother. You are the father. It's your baby. Not the superintendent of schools. Not this master or that master. And you are responsible for the rearing of that child. You can't say, bah, 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 bah. No, no. These other people exist to help you. At your pleasure, if they don't help you, you've got to stand up for it. We have too many weaklings <clears throat> who don't resist the pressure of the establishment or who are only too glad to yield to the pressure of the establishment. And I simply say they are still responsible before God. And that's the only responsibility that matters. You can, you can sweet-talk yourself and be sweet-talked by all the sophists. But on the day of judgment, your responsibility is not how successful was the bridge club and, or, and how many new bathrooms you put in, but how have you handled this responsibility of those precious beings entrusted to you, immortal souls. That's the problem of the family. Now, there are also enemies in this sense, and here we need the enlightenment of men like Chesterton and Belloc and C.S. Lewis. 
these men are not known enough among Roman Catholics, and we need a kind of intellectual class, or you don't even need to be real intellectuals to read these people, but people who spend their time reading serious books instead of watching stupidity, and <clears throat> the social and economic structures are not friendly to the family. And I just want to note some of them, that in, in a country like this, I imagine they are not so bad yet. But in many, many countries, thanks to all kinds of political and economic forces, you have conditions which encourage and sometimes which demand bad things. And one of the worst things, I say, is working mothers. Now, there are unfortunately times which demand if the breadwinner dies or is incapacitated, and it's a desperate case, and there is no help from anyone, so the poor woman entrusted with little children, I'm talking about little children, she has to abandon them to some professional who cannot love the children the way the mother loves the children. Why should a hireling worry more about your child than you worry about your child? And she has to perform a, perhaps a tedious task to keep the family together. That's unfortunate. It, that it happens, we know, but our whole effort should be to make it happen less and less frequently. A working mother is a contradiction in terms. Until the child is secure enough and open and, and, and ready to face the world, the mother's task is the child. But nobody wants to hear that. And that's very unfortunate. Now, there are other situations, above all in Europe, in the continent, where husbands and fathers leave home, say in Italy or Greece or Spain, and they go to work in, for, in Germany for two years straight. They're absent two years from their home, and then they send home their money like that. That happens in many parts of America, too. We have these immigrant laborers who sell their own labor, and they get good wages, but they're separated from their family. Now, any kind of a social condition or economic condition which, either <clears throat> which, which uh, encourages this, or even worse, forces this, is bad. Now, we're not going to change that overnight. You're not going to simply pass a law and all the women with children can stay home and, and be treated right. We're not going to pass a law in which all emigrant labor is returned or is allowed to go with their own family. I understand the reality of the situation, but nobody seems to care. People, people instead of seeing that this is an unfortunate situation, they like it. It's become glamorous that the mother works, whether she needs to or not, that she's at last fulfilled. And who wants to take care of this snotty kid anyhow? Professional. Much better. Junior's got a professional. And he also learned ballet. While mother is, is, is fulfilling herself. This is bad. And we're paying dearly for this kind of social and economic structure that I claim that the healthy family normally needs the presence of the parents and the children. There's nothing like being together. Inevitably, sometimes it cannot happen. And there's a temporary absence, more or less long, more or less enforced. But the ideal should be we get along with each other. And of course, most people don't like their families. I mean, that's the reality that the kids can't stand their brothers and sisters and the spouses are getting a little tired of each other and parents to children and children to parents. And it always seems to be so much better to, to say, well, I got a family, but it's a mere device. In other words, you all have the same key to the apartment and to the house, but you go into where the real action is. It's unfortunate. 
It's unfortunate that within the family, you do not find, especially when the family is young, you do not find your real home. Because really, why should strangers care about you more than your own parents? When you think of it, that here you have a, a man and a woman who presumably had affection for each other when they got married. Here you have children born of their bodily embrace that, who came into being just because of their own activity. You would think that this is the real bond. And clubs and associations and all these other things are relatively secondary. You would think that here you have people who defend you, who love you, who understand you. And this ought to be encouraged. Chesterton, by the way, has an excellent book on this. His books are mostly out of print in America. Uh, this one is. It's called What's Wrong with the World? And he was, uh, it's a big fat book, a series of journalistic articles on men and women, husband, wives, mothers, fathers, families, working wives, and all that. And it's got eminent common sense. I would urge anyone here to try and get a hold of that book and read it, and read it aloud, and, and discuss it. But to get back to this main point then, that in, in, we ought to try and understand what is the God-willed meaning of the family. And it must be this, that into this intimate, permanent union of husband and wife, God entrusts a new person. And this person has every right to have the presence of both parents most of the time. He has every right to be strengthened and supported. And because here life begins, here he understands a lot of things. Here come the original lessons in truth and faith and prayer and value. And to the extent that he's torn away or this unity is dislocated, to the extent that he's fawned out, he's hurt. He's deprived. No matter how rich you are, no matter how much you give him cars and horseback riding later on, you've cheated him of an enormous benefit. And to the extent that the parents unfortunately cannot get together, what a, what a, what a victim we have created, thanks to our own hasty marriage or whatever. I therefore say, a, a part, uh, uh, relevant to this part of the talk, that if there are such things as, as pre-Caner conferences, I sometimes wonder what good they do now because the content is so stupid. The typical pre-Caner conference in America, by the way, given by the church, is a list of the contraceptives. Now that's a, and sometimes in some dioceses, they give the girl the book called The Sensuous Woman, a filthy book. Because, they, because the family life educators think that what we need is, is less prudery. And then if the, girl only, if the girl only is a good competitor to pornography, well, then the marriages will be happy. Otherwise, they'll drive the husband to the porno shop. So that's the depth of the thinking in family life in too many places in the state. And don't think you're immune. I said this the other day in a lecture that we even speak the same language, I hope. We have a slightly superior way of pronouncing it. But uh, you're only six hours away by jet. Somebody like me can give a workshop to somebody like you in six hours. So if we have something, don't say, well, England is an island. They'll always be in England. Yeah, but as long as you have airports and post systems and all that, you'll get some of our filth right here, and you probably have it, and you might even give us some of yours. Nice exchange, common market. 
common market of family life stupidity. But I would suggest something for a serious family life program that if there are young people about to be married, that they, they, and above all Catholic young people, that this is the group I'm presumably addressing, that they have to understand this awesome vocation of marriage. I mean, there's no sense of the destiny and the vocation of marriage. That it, it should be something that's a momentous decision, like the religious life. In a way, it's still more awesome because there are ways to dissolve it's difficult, but there are ways to dissolve vows of chastity, poverty, and obedience for a religious. But the marriage bond is dissolved by death only. So part of preparation for marriage should be to understand this awesome challenge of marriage, should be to understand that we need strong, committed spouses. We need people who understand fidelity who understand what it means to leave behind other extraneous pursuits and to say solemnly and seriously they take another person for a spouse for a life and to accept the children into the family. That this is the vocation of marriage. It has tremendous joys, but it has many hardships and it may be many heartaches. But that's what we need. We don't need new courses on sexual intercourse or contraception or any sort of that perverted stuff that people think is the answer to all the questions of this godless age. I might suggest, too, that for Christian families, don't we need prayer in common? I mean, can we, we don't eat breakfast in common, of course, because dad has the 6 o'clock train, mother the 6.30, the kids 7.30, and therefore we'll never eat in common. But shouldn't there be five minutes? Just five minutes just before the major show on television, which we at least pray in common. This ought to be some sort of a minimum for a Christian family. It's by no means uh, uh, sufficient. And also anyone entering upon a family or already in a family ought to be alert to the tremendous dangers, the awesome responsibilities, the enemies all around. You have no right to say, well, nobody else is worried about it. Well, that means everybody is as, is as asleep as you. It doesn't mean the problem is not there. The problem is there. And never mind other people. They are answerable to God for their actions, you for your actions. So you ought then to be alert to the dangers. And I think that one vow young couples should make is that they ought to be generous in time to the children. That there's this vicious propaganda which the modern world has managed to convince the, everyone else with, that children are some sort of a nuisance. In America, the head of Planned Parenthood, or not the head, but the guiding spirit, she speaks of the disease of pregnancy. Pregnancy is a new disease. And we need all our resources to conquer this terrible disease. Uh, I mean, this is horrible. But I agree if the children come too quickly, it's very tiresome and many, many problems come. And we do have a God-accepted way of spacing families in natural family planning, which ought to be pursued with seriousness by people. But that a child is somehow a nuisance? That a child is somehow some unwanted addition to a beautiful uh, business partnership or something? This is terrible. And this kind of an attitude, by the way, quite apart from its sinfulness, it destroys the real joy 
that a marriage brings and that family brings. There are many joys which everyone knows. They're hard to articulate. But, and they don't need money and they don't need all of these glamorous times. But you have a lot of good times and a picnic or something. And all of this is corroded when you act as if you're being extra generous to Junior to teach him some reading or, 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 or take him somewhere as if he's the nuisance. What are you doing that for? Don't I have this to do and this to do and this to do. Well, that ought to be part of family life courses. I come now to my second type of enemy, the false philosophies which are rampant. You know, we philosophers always look harmless. First of all, we don't wear jackets, we don't wear white jackets, and we, don't, we never qualify for government grants because there's nothing to spend it on. What am I going to spend it on? All we do is sit down and we allegedly think. And people think we're quite of a waste, a drain on the economy. At least if we were engineers, we'd build bridges or something. But philosophers just look like useless citizens who are in pubs talking off the top of their head. And you have a lot of philosophers in the pubs. I mean, even if they don't have degrees, they're homely philosophers. And you might think these guys are harmless. But I tell you, friends, philosophers take a long time to get their ideas in practice. Karl Marx has been dead a hundred years or more. Marxism is alive and well. And you don't beat Marxism by shooting the next communist you meet. Karl Marx's ideas have unfortunately dominated many people, including many religious now in El Salvador and so on. So too, this philosophy which attacks marriage, I saw it coming 50 years ago. I mean, marriages that I knew and families that I knew were relatively healthy. There at least was a public pressure in favor of marriage. Motherhood was not a disease yet. And nevertheless, I used to read these philosophy books and I say, oh, brother, that's going to hurt. And it does hurt. Now, one of the things that uh, England will have to do penance for is its philosopher Bertrand Russell. He, I don't know if you know much about him. He finally died. And at the age of 93, he was a brilliant mathematician and logician, but his philosophy of ethics and the state and the family is one of the most wretched works in the history of philosophy. Yet he was honest about it. I mean, I don't say he's a conspirator. He's just the opposite. He boldly preached a godless uh, uh, theory of life and love and marriage and death and everything else and education. And one of his... Uh, one of his whole points was this, that uh, he, he was thinking of the, of the family of the future, and almost every one of his ideas is now being pushed and is now being practiced by different groups. You know how this is transmitted, by the way, through the so-called social sciences. If they are not really sciences. They're, I mean, history is a valid study, and economics has some validity to it. But sociology and psychology, they have valid research, and I do not mean to dismiss this, but most of the time, what it is, it's subtle philosophy. What they do is they take a philosophical uh, prejudice or dogma, and they dress it up in deep kinds of research with all kinds of uh, uh, data and computer and all this other stuff. But through the so-called social sciences, they spread philosophy. They have the sociology of marriage. 
sociology of society and social revolutions and so on. That's where it starts. And then, of course, in literature courses and in workshops and everything else. And before, if you wonder how come your kid has all these ideas, well, he probably took a few sociology courses, social science. I love the word science. I happen to know enough about real science, chemistry, physics, and biology, not to be too impressed with 99% of the stuff being served up as social science. What it is is just wrapping and using the trappings of science, uh, control group and the like, to, to push a philosophical prejudice. Anyhow, Bertrand Russell's whole problem was this, that he, uh, all these philosophers, the great dream of a philosopher is utopia. It began with Plato, but at least Plato was a supreme genius. Even so, his utopia was not too good. And even in this country, we have Sir Thomas More's utopia. Utopia means nowhere. It doesn't, it's not yet there, but it's a kind of dream of an ideal society. Now, if you ask me what wouldn't be my ideal society, well, I could sketch it, and it would be in terms of love and commitment and marriage and family. That would be it, the way God made it. We still can have it. Youth can still dream about it, but the dream is more and more distant of realization, but it's still possible but the utopians, they look around and they see broken homes, they see idle people, they see too much richness, too much poverty, conflicts of all sorts, and they've got an idea how to solve it all, and their utopia is always totalitarian. Now, this word totalitarian usually conjures up the Nazi stormtroopers, or uh, the stormtroopers marching and they shoot people if you don't obey the Fuhrer. Totalitarian could be a nice, quiet place like England or America where some little woman in, in rimless glasses tells you to fill out a form about how many children you're licensed to have. That's totalitarian. The essence of the totalitarian state is the state alleges the absolute control over the person. That's whether they have stormtroopers or little old ladies with forms that they want filled out. So some people think it will never happen here. We don't have any military, uh, part of our problem. We don't have any military, and we don't have stormtroopers, and we have a democracy. Yeah, but you can vote in these geniuses with the gleam in their eye about this wonderful society when the state <clears throat> will tell you whether you have babies, they'll check you out for the right genes, and if you ever have a deformed fetus, you better get rid of it, etc., etc. But then the question arises, <clears throat> so totalitarianism, therefore, is this. You have planners who know ever so much more than you. Who are you? You little woman, you little girl, you're in love with that nice boy. You get married and you'll probably have a blockhead for a child because he's not too bright, your husband. You yourself have probably a diabetes gene or something like that. So the totalitarian state will allow you to have fun Oh, if you want sex, have all you want. We'll just clean it up so you don't get VD or the other disease of pregnancy. So we're not going to stop you from having your fun. But children are much too serious to be left to parents. That, that, that's the totalitarian ideal. So you people have this excellent satirist, uh, Huxley, Aldous Huxley, Brave New World. It's a masterwork. Some people foolishly think Huxley is against the family. 
He is satirizing those who are against the family. I don't say you should let your adolescent read it. You should read it. And the great C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Abolition of Man, he shows you what the control is a dreaming of. Now, their dreams have not yet come true. They still, they don't have the power yet. But the more one centralizes education, health services, <clears throat> abortion referrals, money, power, the more their dreams can come true. So Bertrand Russell's point was this. He says that uh, it's soon going to become quite obsolete for men and women to marry and have a family. <clears throat> Too much trouble, the woman isn't fulfilled, <clears throat> and there are all kinds of other problems. But he said, but we still need babies. Obviously, if baby creation dies out, <clears throat> the controllers won't have anybody to control. They won't even be, you won't even need the government. You won't even need sociologists if there are no babies. So they've got to ensure a supply of babies. Now, God thought he had it ensured by the institution of marriage. And that's the way it's worked out most of the time. It's had its problems, but it's had its great joys. The utopians have, they want, a, Russell said, we need highly paid professional women who will agree to bear a child by artificial insemination, of course. I mean, or else maybe by some miracle they'll love the donor or they'll enjoy the donor. But that, we're going to separate sex from babies, <clears throat> which is what they're doing today with the pill and with abortion. So sex is for fun and, and deep commitment and all that. <clears throat> but when we need that next crop of babies so that we'll have somebody to pay taxes and somebody to run, well, we'll, we'll Plato even had this, we'll get the best specimens of the women, you know, wide hips, intelligence, and maybe blue eyes, who knows, if we're eugenic experts, we'll take all kinds of blood samples, to make sure we don't have uh, recessive genes anywhere, then we'll get the best donors. You know, I'm mocking this, but it's happened already. I think you've heard of this society. Uh, I don't know if it's, it's a kooky idea, so I always think of England and America when I think of kooky ideas. Excuse me for doing that. But some kooky English-speaking country, so some genius formed this society of sperm banks. We'll get all the, the thinkers. See, if only Russell had left us a little of his uh, uh, seed. And we have all these sperm banks. And then what do you know uh, when we need a couple of hundred good sociologists or, or air traffic controllers or mathematicians? Well, by eugenic breeding, we'll get the babies. And uh, now... The minute you get a baby, that's kind of, uh, uh, as any mother knows, that's work. But once the surrogate mother, she gets her salary, one baby every two years, you put her on pasture for one year to build up her vitamins, uh, she'll get her salary. Then what happens? Well, the professionals take over. The day nursery without which no one can live. From, from ye day one on, we'll have professional nurses, professional diaper changers, and, of course, professional teachers. Well, that's the kind of nonsense that is being pushed in social sciences, in philosophy, in literature. And a lot of people think, isn't it wonderful? I, can't, I hope I live long enough for this brave new world. And especially this could be this, uh, uh, because otherwise one, one faces this bleak prospect of 
a husband who might not be that good-looking or bright, and, and diapers, and then sniveling noses, and no fulfillment. Oh, it's terrible, terrible, terrible. And in this brave new world, therefore, we'll get the citizens. But, dear friends, or I hope you see already how grotesque this is, quite apart from this immorality of this irreverent of, of treating a human person as if he's some animal and that one gets it by artificial insemination, by breeding the best stock. That's already the ultimate horror, is this irreverent uh, dethroning of the God-willed way of transmitting human life. But do you also see the element of selfishness here? That the, and this is what they've told the women. The women are the victims of a vicious campaign of women's liberation. And the, the sense is this, that the only way to be fulfilled or to be happy is to go for me, number one. You've got to be fulfilled. And the women livers, they have some valid points, and let's quickly note this, that in the event that a woman has to work, which is sad enough, it is absolutely just that she received the same wage as a male. That there should be no discrimination. And I think they have a right to protest that. And there are certain other things that if a woman is alone trying to raise a family because her husband is dead or, or left, she has a right to get a mortgage. They used to be discriminated against that they would not be allowed to take loans out. So for those juridical problems, the women livers did right to insist on women's rights here. But that's not what women's liberation wants. Women's liberation hates what they think is the biological destiny of wife and mother. They say simply because we have a certain uterus, a womb, we are condemned to kitchen stoves and diapers and, and toddlers while my, our husbands are jetting across the country and playing bridge and having drinks and all that. And by gum, they want affirmative action. They don't want 3% of the women being doctors or nurses. They want 50% of everything. So their whole point in their delusion, they think that life, what life means is professionalism, jet aircraft, cocktails, uh, uh, you know, being fulfilled and being known, whereas to be the wife of one husband and the mother of several children is so demeaning, it's so uncreative, it's so terrible, and therefore they really thrust aside what they sneer at as their biological destiny for the sake of something which everyone knows is an illusion. I mean, how stupid they are. If they thought that happiness comes from jet aircraft and cocktail parties, why aren't the men happy? The men are as wretched as the women. They ought to start understanding what it's all about. Most work is burdensome. The Bible says that, that we, Adam was condemned to earn his bread by the sweat of his brow. Bricklayers and truck drivers and, and postmen and all, that's not fun. There's a lot of burden in the world. And the kitchen and the, the nursery have its burden. Let's not kid about it. But some little work, some portion of work is creative in the professions. But I say the home can be equally creative. That here it depends on attitude and formation, and there can be a deep creative contact in a woman's life between her gift of giving a working man a home, some place to come to instead of a note 
The dinner is in the freezer. A home to be greeted by someone who's not tired. Having children who are brought up. Teaching the children to, to read and to pray. And having this life with the children. This is the destiny. And all of us, by the way, quite apart from our division of labor, all of us have our final destiny with God. We have tasks. Some of us are professional, some non-professional. Some have more burdensome work, some more creative work. Some have family, some have not. But ultimately speaking, the secret of life is this generosity of not seeking our own good and fulfillment. That's precisely the negation of the gospel. Christ says, unless the seed dies, it is barren. And he who, who seeks himself loses himself. It's only he who loses himself that finds himself. So this is where the church and Christian message should come in. That whether we are single or celibate religious or married people or children or whatever, it is already poisonous to have this Jealous, narrow attitude. I gotta be me. I gotta succeed. Ooh, 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 ooh. We're racing, racing, racing. And you always have the highest point. You want to be a surgeon, an engineer, the top thing in that. So your entire life is a postponement of anything human for the sake of getting to that wonderful thing. And when you're there, you're lonely, you're wretched, and you have ulcers. So we better straighten out the thinking of people, the men and the women, the young and the old, we better start lining up what are the, the priorities in life, above all for a Christian. We're much too horizontal lately, dear friend. We're too rich and we're too fat. Even when we complain about the price of meat, we're all too rich, too fat, too spoiled. And therefore, and the children get the message that money, prestige, profession, power, that's where it all is. And the real joys which can undeniably come when one is forgetful of self and one has these good relationships with people, when one is nurtured by the sublimity of God. That's the height we should seek for. We should seek to be pleasing to that almighty majesty. In those moments come the real joys of life. And then they lead us, if we respond correctly, to eternal joy. That's fulfillment. Not being an executive. Uh, a woman, an executive, she dresses like a man, curses like a man, drinks like a man, and she's an executive. Oh, isn't it wonderful? Well, I'm not impressed. I, mean, I guess it's good. I guess it beats doing the dishes, but not by much. And it isn't even worth it in terms of these false values which you're swallowing, thanks to the media. So I want to, uh, the question now is what can be done? And I will propose a few things here that I, I say that the first thing always is, what we have to do is see the truth. The big enemy is, first of all, our being deceived, our being... <clears throat> We are unthinking, and most of us prefer not to think. And we have, allowed our, we have allowed ourselves to drift and to absorb the thinking of the 20th century, which is mostly atheistic, 
It's mostly rooted in this world, therefore it's called secularistic, and, it has, and it's selfish. It's rooted in the self. Everyone's going, me, 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 and everyone's looking for happiness, and so few are even having serenity of heart. They are so gripped by this envy and this burning ambition all about them. And for us, what we have to do is to appreciate how false are the values being touted by the media and the world. We have to be alert within our own family that before we save the world, we have to see if we can save our own children. We have to see if we can have perhaps a better attitude toward our own spouse, our own parent, our own friends. We have to be alert. We may not allow slogans like family life to lull us to sleep that all is well in the education of our children. We have to worry what reading material finds its way into our home. You know, the popes are almost alone in all this, that the more I read the history of the last 150 years, the more I realize that God has given us these lonely giants who in no way enjoy their job. Don't tell me being pope is fulfilling. It's staggering. But these lonely giants, one after another, from Leo XIII on, they have understood the crisis of families, of the worker, of national governments, of war, of economic systems and everything. And they have tried to teach us, and they've had some good followers among this priest, that bishop, this, this publication society. But for the most part, they've been shunted aside in favor of of pied pipers who play the tune you want to hear and we want to hear, who won't wake anyone up. So one effect might be to, to start, uh, for those for whom it is possible, it might pay to start reading serious literature. Get to know what the popes have said about family life, about literature in the home, about pornography and so on. Get to know what they say about being a parent. Pope uh, Pius XI wrote magnificent, uh, one was called The Christian Education of Youth. Absolutely should be read by everyone, including certain Christian religious educators who are defying everything Pius uh, XI said in that encyclical. So this is part of it all. We have to have this rebirth or this original birth in being alert in understanding things, in pushing out this fog of fulfillment, of, of self-fulfillment, and understanding the truth. We also have to realize something which Chesterton said. I was hoping I could have asked Father Porter if he had a copy of this book, What's Wrong with the World. I don't myself own the copy, and I don't have the exact quote. But here's the trouble. In, in the normal life, I say within the next year, People in this town will hear about a bill in Parliament which will be for more nursery schools. Let's say something like this. And some woman will get up and say, the government has to give us more day nurseries. We're fed up with the fact that we can't find anywhere to leave our children and all that. Now, what's the answer to this? Well, the answer is not simply to say we don't need day nurseries. It may perfectly happen, alas, that women have been forced to work precisely by divorce, broken marriages, or death of spouse, or whatever. 
And it may be that their children will be taken care of better in a day nursery than in leaving them, abandoning them to home to some sick babysitter who might pervert them. So so you can't tell how the issue should go this way or that way. But the main thing, as Chesterton says, is the direction. That if you are in my direction, you will deplore the necessity of having day nurseries. You should say that everything we do in the future should be to strengthen the home, strengthen the presence of mothers in the home, that if the father is somehow not present, it's far better to give her welfare without any disgrace and keep her there. That's the, whereas the wrong direction is, aren't we better off? Oh, we're liberated, we're liberated. The day nursery is the new cathedral of women's liberation. It makes it, that's the symbol of their liberation. Well, at least we have to bear the kid, darn it, but we don't have to kill, we don't have to change them or teach them. That's the vicious thing. So what you have to do is, you have to be shrewd. You don't simply denounce something. You wonder in what direction does it tend. And we need a rebirth, dear friends, of Christian social doctrine. We have to put the, we, Christ has to be the leader of society, of economics, of families and everything. We, we are not permitted to allow these unbridled forces to determine our lives. And what we need is a resurrection of Catholic social thought. The most painless way, I don't say it's the greatest way, but begin with Chesterton. Anybody can read Chesterton. He used to be daily fair in every really Catholic home where I came from. Hundreds of thousands of his books would be quoted by by, uh, uh, normal people. They all would have a quote from Chesterton, and he saw a lot of issues. He didn't always have the right answer, but he would wake you up to an alternative to the position. And then some few who are able should go further should start reading serious journals, should start discussion groups among yourselves. You have to take more seriously this problem of the family. You know that war, inflation, things like that, you you can't do too much about that. Your family, you can do everything about this. And you can plant the seeds for a Christian rebirth of the family. Today, according to the flyer, is the Feast of the Visitation of Our Lady, and it's a very auspicious occasion for my having talked about the family and also the family from the Christian point of view, that here we have this mysterious union of two mothers of families, the one having her John the Baptist within a few months of birth, the other having her Emmanuel, a bit younger, and both of them having permanent spouses, and both of them filled with the Holy Spirit. So in this evening, we should reflect on this mystery of those two noble women, the noblest of them all, the Blessed Mother, and her cousin, Elizabeth. And we should also pray to the Holy Family, Jesus, Mary, and Joseph. Pray for us.
thank Dr. Meyer very, very much. It's one thing to know what's wrong, but it's nice to hear somebody else explain it so succinctly to realise it. Um, just one thought came to me. Dr. Meyer mentioned uh, Pius XI. I remember, I think it was 1932, the Christian Education of Youth came out. And um, we were at the seminary at the time, and so we had to discuss it. And one part was about uh, co-education. And the Holy Father there said that if uh, some misguided people with the best of intentions thought it was a good thing, he said if it was allowed, it would be the breakdown of Christian marriage. 1932, and this is 81, is about right. Uh, the Holy Father always seemed to be right, and uh, I'm sure Dr. Myers right, saying that we should think of these things more. Um, you're probably like me, we, we know these things, but it's so hard to know what to do. Um, Dr. Morris said we should have discussion groups. <clears throat> a while back, I went to some discussion groups, not in the deanery area, and I think I was the only one that, uh, well, <laughs> from my point of view, was orthodox. Uh, you know, they weren't quite sure about um, divorce, and some people weren't quite sure about um, the right of celibacy. Um, and, uh, and they weren't all married people. So, uh, even in discussion groups, you've got to have the right people to discuss, I think. This is our difficulty. But I'm quite sure Dr. Meyer gives us an optimistic uh, note. We've got to uh, recognise these things. There's just one thing, perhaps, Dr. Meyer might help. In this parish, there are three families where... The father, in each family, the father um, died young. And um, two, in one, two children in one family, three in another, <coughs> four in the third. And they're among the best young Catholics we've got. In, many of them are married, and, uh, but they never sort of missed their religious duties. So... I don't decry fathers, God knows, but um, if a mother's good, then the whole family is um, safeguarded. There's nobody can take a place for a mother. A very important point. Probably the mother is more important for the piety of the family. I know Cardinal Menzenti said the mother is the most important person in the world, and that should be uh, promulgated more widely. We could have discussion of any women libbers here. <laughs> any questions or discussion, really? We haven't got any opposition. <laughs> Please. We hear a lot of headlines in the past. Some of them call the population exploding. I think there are frankly too many people on the earth. I mean, Right, uh, that's a good point. I didn't mention that this pressure for uh, a contraception and abortion usually addresses itself, uh, what I've mentioned, was merely the personal problem of a family having children that are not spaced enough. But uh, you're quite right that in the schools, the way they make youngsters feel guilty about having a family is they start showing how 
in a few years we'll run out of oxygen or something. They always love to use mathematics and uh, uh, my goodness that uh, 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 if, if the rate goes on like this we'll be living bumper to bumper and so on. So they have all these scare tactics. Now there's no doubt that certain resources are limited. Every resource is limited and there's no doubt if we have this wild selfish exploitation of the earth's resources that things can get wrong. There's no doubt that in spots on the earth, in certain areas of the earth, the land can support the population. But it's sheer, it's sheer hysteria to act as if man is the problem and that we who go to the moon, we, we somehow can solve the problem of, of ecology or of, of uh, sewer systems or whatever. You know, in New York we have a beautiful zoo, but I hate it with a passion. Because what they do is they have these charming animals and all this, but they have the entire message of the zoo is you humans are the worst part of the earth. Lions are cute, kangaroos are cute, but you're polluting the earth. They have one sign saying, look in the mirror. Who is, who is breeding out of control? The human race. Disgusting. That's our zoological garden. So, so therefore, you feel as if you committed a crime. They have a baby. You've committed a crime. But if you ever see who's really polluting the earth, it's usually the playboys with their water skiing and, and everything else. That In Hong Kong, which I think is still a British colony, you have an incredibly dense population, and I hear they're living rather well. Now, I don't say we ought to live bumper to bumper especially looking at some of my neighbors. I'd like a little distance from them. But I want to just give you something about this. I come from the state of New Jersey, which is the second smallest state in the Union because uh, in land. I don't know our area, but it's quite small. The only one smaller being Rhode Island. We have something like 7.5 million people packed into the state of New Jersey. I personally, though, live one hour from New York City, the heart of New York City. I have four and a half acres with deer and grouse. That, that's what they mean by population pressure. So I would say this, that there ought to be responsible parenthood. That you We're not simply saying that everybody should have all the children uh, biologically possible. We're not saying that. We're saying that each couple uh, ought to be generous in its child-rearing and that if each couple, if the family is together, that little hungry mouth, which is a consumer for the first eight or nine years, the first eight or nine years, the child gives you nothing, economically speaking. But after that, he can be a producer. And, the, and if the children worked instead of demanding entertainment and all that, and I mean chores, I don't mean going to the factory, that in the moment you're a producer, you're not, you're not stripping the earth. You're producing stuff from the earth. There's so many things to be done in nature, in parks, in production, in science, and the like. So I say that, uh, and then of course, you mean human ingenuity is such that finally we're going to starve to death? That's not our problem. You know, you have a great co economist, Colin Clark. I believe he's from London. He might be from Australia. And we in America have an excellent man named Rush Dooney. Uh, there are several books by serious economists showing you that this population bomb is mostly hysterical. 
that to the extent it applies in parts of India, in parts of the Sudan, we need a relocation of people. But people aren't the enemy. This is very important. And you know who knows this is the Pope. I mean, this, this beautiful Pope, he's not liked by certain people because uh, he doesn't seem to uh, give blanket approval to Western capitalism. Some people think he's a communist, which is the greatest nonsense I've ever heard, to say that John Paul II is a communist or a communist sympathizer. But, <clears throat> but this Pope understands that people are not the enemy. And that if people, if we live frugally, instead of wasting, it's not the people, it's not the masses who waste. It's the idle rich, it's the playboys. It's a tremendous waste, even in the middle class, of energy and, and food and everything else. That, and this Pope knows it. That this Pope looks at a human person. There's an image of God. There's something precious. We're not going to act as if he's the criminal. Oh, it's certain politicians who are criminals. All kinds of greedy people who are criminals. So I, for one, would never be intimidated by this population explosion. But, you know, I have students coming to Fordham, which is allegedly a Catholic university, and I mentioned offhand in one class that abortion is evil. Well, here's a student coming from the best Jesuit high school in New York, my old alma mater, to which I would not send my dog now. And he said, oh, we have to have abortion. We have to have abortion. He's a freshman in college. We have to have abortion. Otherwise, the, we'll, we'll, the, there'll be overpopulation. We'll be strangling each other and everything. So it didn't even, never mind contraception, that he so swallowed this population bomb that, well, if you have to kill, you kill. That's all. It's a vicious anti-life philosophy. Any other? Discussion? Well, good evening then. Thank you. Oh, yes. Uh, 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 Mr. Edwards uh, asked to, that I remind you that uh, I've been on a series of eight talks in the United Kingdom. I was in Scotland yesterday. And there are certain expenses connected with my being here. It's simply a question of expenses. So they do ask a donation as you leave to defray the cost. I hope to be back next year, but I might be stranded for lack of car fare home. So thank you.